You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, friends, we've been moving through a series in February. It's been entitled The Kingdom of Heaven in 2011. Uh, we've been using the opportunity to uh, highlight some of the values, some of the core values, some of the key emphases of our ministry here at Northside. And we've, uh, we've discovered that the kingdom of heaven is like trying to weed a field, cooking with yeast, like trying to plant a mustard seed, like investing in a precious pearl is today's parable. I want to add one more parable to verse 44. Um, my fault, left out of the reading, don't know why. Verse 44, kingdom of heaven is like this. A man happens to find a treasure hidden in the ground. He covers it up and is so happy that he goes and sells everything he has and then goes back and buys that piece of land. That's the parable that precedes the the parable of the pearl of great price. I wonder how Jesus would tell these parables today. With the parable of the hidden treasure, it might be something like this. There was a plumber and he's working in a backyard and he's digging a deep, digging a hole for, a, 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 for piping, a deep trench. And then the equipment hits something really hard. And he, uh, he stops to investigate. He finds this big chest and it's obviously been there for decades. And he prizes it open and he finds in that chest lots of money, all $100 bills stacked, stacked high. Jewelry, sparkling jewelry. The thing that really takes his attention is all the gold bars, long gold bars, 20 ounce. It's, it's just, he, he cannot believe it. So he decides to put the lid back on the box, rebury it deep in the earth. And then he uh, rather sheepishly goes up to the owner of the, uh, of the house and says, uh, excuse me, buddy, have you ever thought of selling this place? And the guy says, uh, not really. He says, what do you think it's worth? I don't know, this district, 750 would be way above market value. Done. I'll buy it. Guy's amazed. This plumber's already uh, sort of estimated there's about $2 million worth at least in that, in that chest. So he goes up, he sells his one-bedroom apartment, he sells his ute, he sells everything, wants to do a cash deal, comes back to the owner and says, here's your 750 knowing he's made a $1.25 million profit. Now, there's just something that's just not... This doesn't sit all that well in a story like that. I mean, surely, ethically and morally, surely the uh, original owner of that home has some sort of stake in that treasure that was buried all those years ago. But what about the guy who's a dealer in jewellery? He's a merchant in fine jewellery. And he comes home one night and he shows his wife this amazing pearl. It is just beautiful. You can barely look at it. It's so Radiant and beautiful. And he says to his wife, this is what I've been searching for in all my years as a jewellery merchant. This is it. This is the one that I've been looking for. And she's amazed. But then she pauses, as wives tend to do, and uh, thinks a little bit and says, "Uh, that's great, darling, but like, how are we going to afford that? And uh, in a scene reminiscent of the the king's speech, uh, he sort of stutters and stammers his way through an answer and says, well, um, I've had to sell everything. She says, what do you mean? Well, you know, house, car, the boat, pretty much everything except the clothes we're standing in. Sold a lot. I mean, we would look at us and go, what? I mean, how financially irresponsible would a guy be 
to, to do that. It just defies imagination. But Jesus says that's what life in the kingdom is like. It's like a guy who, who sells everything to buy a piece of land, doesn't tell the owner that there's a treasure there. It's like a guy who sells everything to buy one pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a little bizarre. It's a little crazy. It's a little off-centre. This is Jesus. This is, this is how his stories would have hit the people of his day. It's certainly not what you'd expect. And friends, these parables of Jesus were not what the people of that day expected. No way. They, but the one thing is they could not have helped. They could not have failed to appreciate that the central theme of these stories is this. Both parables depict a person prepared to pay an extraordinary price for something they desperately want. Now, that's what Jesus was trying to get across. That's the message he was trying to convey. Like most of his parables, these two parables have an extreme aspect to them, a really exaggerated aspect to them, which is not meant to be overly analysed. That's one thing you learn about with the parables of Jesus. These little components of the story are not meant to be pulled apart and put under a microscope because if you do that, the story loses a lot of its power. These aren't meant to be over-analysed. But they are, they were and they are, the parables, an effective way to drive home a key point. And that was always Jesus' intention, to drive home a key point. And in this instance, that key point is this. The benefits of participating in God's kingdom far outweigh any cost. Now there's the kingdom message in these two parables. There's the, there's the message Jesus was wanting to get across. That's what he wanted his hearers to grasp. He didn't want them to, be over, to, to overly focus on the ethics of the man who bought the field, nor on the financial responsibility of the guy who sold everything to acquire the one single pearl. He wanted people to understand that when it comes to entry into God's kingdom, when it comes to embracing God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, it's worth abandoning Everything else, everything else that may have once commanded our loyalty and determined our priorities, abandoning all of that. Now, friends, I've got to tell you, that's heavy. That, that's a little unnerving for comfortable Christians like you and me. That sort of message speaks about a level of surrender and commitment. Many of us are probably thinking, I'm not sure if I could handle that. I'm not sure if I could do that. Let's look more closely and just see what further light the Word of God shows on this. I want to contrast the experience of Saul and the rich young ruler. Here are two biblical examples which graphically illustrate the point Jesus is making in these parables. On the one hand, Saul of Tarsus later became Paul. Saul of Tarsus, what have we got? Highly respected man within the Jewish religious community. Exceptionally qualified. The recipient of many, many perks and many honours, many privileges of whom it could have been said, wow, he's really made it. He has made it. That man's got everything he needs and everything he wants. Such great breathing and great passage into the high echelons of the religious faith of his day, the Jewish faith. But, that's a big but, following his conversion experience on the Damascus Road, Paul, or Saul became Paul, forfeited everything to buy that field. He 
abandoned everything that had gone before to acquire that pearl of great price. He became hated by the religious leaders he once rubbed shoulders with. He lost his standing in academic circles and within the social elite among whom he once had such great influence. He talks about this quite candidly and uh, you, you know the passage, it's in Philippians and he, he, he's, he's very frank in the way he outlines his story. He says, he says, but of all those things that I might count as profit, I now reckon as loss for Christ's sake. Not only those things, but I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable. The knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have thrown everything away. You see the significance of these verses in light of these parables? Love the way scripture speaks to scripture. I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. I no longer have a righteousness of my own, the kind that is gained by obeying the law. I now have the righteousness that is given through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is based on faith. All I want to know is Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life. Saul became known as Paul, a man who literally put everything on the line, everything, to gain that which, to gain the one thing that he believed mattered, his personal salvation in Jesus Christ. That was number one. Now, what about the rich young ruler? What a contrast. Huh? I mean, here's a guy who came to Jesus with a genuine desire, genuine desire to gain what might be regarded as the holy grail, the promise of eternal life, living forever. You know. And we read about that in Mark chapter 10. Let's quickly review our, our memories of this incident. As Jesus was starting on his way again, a man ran up, knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't, cause anyone, don't accuse anyone falsely, do not cheat, respect your father and mother. Teacher, the man said, ever since I was young, I have obeyed all these commandments. We're talking about a pretty impressive guy here. Jesus looked straight at him and with love and said, you need only one thing. Go and sell all you have, give the money to the poor and you will have riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, gloom spread over his face and he went away sad because he was very rich. Now, friends, you see the, this story in light of what Jesus is talking about in the parables. Here's a guy with a chance to buy the field. Here's a guy with a chance to acquire the pearl. And he passed it up because he failed to realise that the benefits of participating in the kingdom of heaven far outweigh any cost. He'd failed to realise that. And if he really believed Jesus could usher him into eternal life, what price would be too great for that? He chose his savings down at the, the nab or wherever he had them to, in, in preference to that. Sad. The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price. What do we, comfortable, self-sufficient Western Christians, what, what do we do when confronted with stories like these? When we know the price many Christians 
when we know the price that many Christians have to pay for their faith around the world, when we know that in parts of the world it does cost one everything to be a Christian. I remember years ago in a, a leadership magazine seeing a graphic, and what wasn't a cartoon so much as a, a kind of a, a graphic depiction of a little scenario. Two businessmen. One was an Aussie and he said this, since coming to Christ my business is booming. My profits are up. My family is more secure than ever. And the other one was a businessman from China. And he said, since coming to Christ, I've lost my business. Any profits I'd made have been confiscated by the state. I no longer have a family because my loved ones have rejected me. Same decision. Very different interpretation. Very different outcome. What a contrast. I will remember a conversation I had with a young Indian teacher in the uh, town of Bori out in rural western India in 1997. And this man was telling me what a difference Jesus Christ had made in his life. And I'd already become so aware of the Hindu culture over there and what that means to an Indian person. You're actually born into the Hindu faith. You don't embrace it. You are a Hindu. And I asked the question, I said, how does your family, well, what do they think of you becoming such a dynamic Christian? And for the first time in our conversation, his eyes glazed over a little bit. He dropped them to the ground and said, well, I'm sad to say I don't have any family anymore. They, they don't relate to me at all. I have been totally banished from my family. And uh, that's the price I've paid for being a Christian. Um, what is it? Martin Marty, the US theologian, once said, against the backdrop of, of communism, against the, the backdrop, rather, of Christianity in communist Poland, as it was then, back in the, back in the 70s, and Martin Marty said, it's hard to be a Christian where it's easy to be a Christian. And it's easy to be a Christian where it's hard to be a Christian. And you've got to really think that through. But in a, a setting like ours where, you know, it's quite okay to be a Christian, it, it's, it's very hard to really stand out. But in a country where it's really difficult to be a Christian, you do stand out. You are noticeable. It's either one thing or the other. There's no choice. You've got to stand firm. So what do you do? What do we do with these parables? What do they say to us in our relatively comfortable surroundings? Where being a Christian, whilst not popular, certainly still is socially acceptable. It's okay to be a Christian. What do these parables say to us? Well, friends, they speak about a number of things. And only you, in your relationship with God, can really respond to these intimate areas of discipleship. See, these parables speak about priorities. They speak about priorities how we spend our time, how we're investing our time. They speak about courage, the extent to which we are prepared to openly declare that we are Christians in all settings. They speak about integrity, the extent to which we are prepared to live life and do business as a reflection of our Christian values so that there's no conflict between what happens on Sunday and what happens during the week. They speak about integrity at that level. They also speak about sacrifice, how we use our money, the extent to which we see money as our God, small g, or as a means to serve our God, capital G. So this question comes to me first, and then it may come to you as well. What is our faith costing us? What is our faith costing us? And to what extent are we showing a certain reckless abandon in the way we live our faith and apply our faith, as did the two guys in these parables. These are questions we must answer before God.
But one thing is sure. Jesus wants each one of us to fully appreciate and believe that the benefits of being a participant in his kingdom far outweigh any cost that may be involved. Let me conclude with uh, another story. We've heard Donna's courageous story. Uh, Jim Elliott, uh, an American born in Portland, Oregon in 1927. At 18 years of age, he entered the Wheaton Theological College just outside of Chicago in Illinois, same college where Billy Graham trained uh, some years later. Um, in, uh, in 1952, as a 25-year-old, he and some friends volunteered for missionary service in the Amazon Basin in, uh, in Ecuador. And uh, their idea was to attempt to evangelise a very, very primitive group uh, called the uh, Wayodani, the Wayodani Indians, sometimes known as the Alka Indians. And this group had never been reached by Western society before, let alone by the Christian church. And over a period of months, these men built a bridge. They thought they were building a bridge to these Indians. They dropped them gifts. Some of you know the story. It was one of the first missionary stories I ever heard as a young boy, uh, as one who grew up in the 50s. And they finally had the courage to land their little plane on a beach deep in the Amazon basin to make first of, first-hand contact with these, these primitive tribes, people whom they'd only made contact with from the air and through dropping gifts and so on. And uh, on that particular afternoon, uh, Jim Elliott and uh, his four missionary companions were all speared to death right there on the banks of the river. And this, this story went right around the world. As I say, I was just a little boy. And some of you were young, I'm sure, when you first heard this amazing story of courage and faith and just putting it all on the line, uh, doing everything to gain the pearl of great price to serve Jesus Christ. And Jim Elliott had written this in in his personal diary during his years at Wheaton, Illinois. This is what he wrote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You've got to think about that for a week and think about what that means. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What did Paul say? All I want to know is Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, in the hope that I myself be raised from death to life. Friends, these parables aren't meant to make us feel inadequate. They're not meant to make us feel, uh, not meant to belittle us. They're meant to inspire us. They're meant to draw us deeper into a, a, a complete situation of faith and surrender and trust with God, giving it over to God, as we've heard from Donna this morning. Reread these parables, reread what Paul said, reflect on that saying for a week, see what it does to the depth of your journey with Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Well, Father God, thank you for the fact that, that our Lord Jesus Christ reminded us in a, a bizarre kind of way, really, with these parables, that uh, the only way to really live the Christian life is to absolutely go for it, to uh, put it all on the line, just to be willing to surrender everything at any one point in order to gain the prize of the high calling in Jesus Christ. Lord, these are scary principles and uh, we could be led into a situation of fear and intimidation help us to break through and be inspired by this teaching so that we will truly discover how we are meant to relate to you at that deeper level through jesus christ our lord we pray amen